Hey everyone, John Huang here. Before we start this episode, I wanted to let you know that Cindy and I have made some corrections to the very first episode of Hoofbeats we released back in May. If you haven't listened to it, it's about a young woman who presented with sudden-onset generalized weakness. While all of the clinical data and the final diagnoses presented in the episode were accurate, we later learned that the hospital course unfolded a bit differently than how we were initially told. The correct diagnoses were actually suspected by the ICU team at the time the patient was stepped down to the floor, and the definitive tests were already pending. After talking again with the clinicians involved in the case, we've gone ahead and posted a corrected version of that episode. I think learning from cases is hard enough to begin with. This is something we talked about in our most recent episode. So Cindy and I just want to make sure that we're always bringing you fully accurate, high-quality cases and case discussions. And with that in mind, on to this month's episode. Hi everyone, Cindy Fan here. Welcome back to another episode of Hoopies, where we challenge you to solve diagnostically difficult real-world cases alongside experienced clinicians. So in this episode, we are going to be adding a little twist. It's been six months since Hoofbeats started, and John and I have been having a lot of fun listening to discussions pick apart these complicated cases. We've been learning a lot, and we hope you've been too. But we've also been wondering what ideas you, our listeners, might have. So in this episode, you'll hear us present a case and talk with the discussant as usual. But instead of ending things there uh, with a final diagnosis like we usually do, we're going to invite you to submit your diagnosis or differential to us, and we'll walk you through how to submit in just a moment. Then, a couple weeks from now, we'll be back with a follow-up episode where we'll review your submissions, uh, then the conclusion to the case. You know, some people are going to ask, "Why are you doing this? Why are you torturing us?" With an episode that does not immediately gratify me with a final diagnosis, as if the real world indulged us like that. But seriously, for one, I think this is about overcoming passive learning, which is just one of those unfortunate limitations of podcasts. I mean, listening to discussions pick apart crazy cases can be entertaining, sure, but is that necessarily learning? I mean, that's like、uh, sitting at a sushi bar watching the guys behind the counter for a couple hours. Than saying you're a master sushi chef, I would not eat anything you made. To learn, we have to ante up, have to put something on the line, get it right or get it wrong. Just don't be neither. Also, don't tell our discussant this, but I'm very curious. How does the wisdom of a single master clinician compare to the collective knowledge of a group? So that brings us to something I want to talk about, which is the platform we'd like listeners to use to submit their diagnoses for this week. It's called Human DX. By the way, if you're already familiar with、uh, Human DX, feel free to skip ahead to the six-minute mark and jump straight into the case. You can find it online, www.humandx.org. There's also a free app version you can download for Apple and Android devices. So Human DX, it's an online database of thousands of interactive medical cases. All of these cases are submitted by users, and it's an open system. Anybody can sign up for free to solve cases or contribute their own. And a group of editors peer reviews all submissions before they're released for the community to solve. It's meant to exercise our skills with hypothesis generation, with identifying patterns and building connections between data. And at the end, do we get a final diagnosis? Well, it depends. When you finish a case, and these are quick—two to three minutes、uh, in general. 
you always see the community's differential. That's what everyone else who tried to solve the case thought. And if the author of the case intended it as a teaching case, then yes, there will be the real-world final diagnosis, uh, along with some teaching points and clinical pearls too. But say in the real world you have a mystery patient you can't figure out. Or maybe you think you have figured it out, but you're like me. You're woefully insecure and you're desperately in need of validation. You can submit your case as a get-help case uh, without a known or final diagnosis and just see what people think. Oh, so you're essentially crowdsourcing diagnosis. Exactly. This was actually one of the reasons HumanDX was first created. Um, it's, it was envisioned as a way to use uh, the collective knowledge of clinicians around the world uh, to improve access to, to care, especially for underserved populations. Um, you know, there's also a competitive cooperation aspect. So the system will keep track of how accurately and efficiently you're solving cases. And it ranks you, which I'm going to admit that that speaks to the gamer in me. Aha. All right. Well, are we ready to move on to the case finally? Yeah, you bet. So here to walk us through this case is uh, Dr. Marty Fried. You probably heard him co-host on the Five Pearls podcast, and he's one of the originators of the whole Core IM project. So we are very glad to have him here with us. Marty, please take away. An 85-year-old woman is admitted to you for acute changes in her behavior over the past two days. Her chief complaint to you is, quote, they are trying to poison me with the pills, unquote. She was hospitalized two weeks ago for perforated diverticulitis. The hospital course was complicated by SVT that resolved with adenosine and delirium that improved with conservative measures. She completed a course of antibiotics two days prior to this admission. The next day, her change in behavior prompted a transfer to the emergency room. Unfortunately, when you first see her, there is no collateral available from her facility. You look through her chart, though, and see that she carries diagnoses of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, and possibly antiphospholipid syndrome. She had a DVT one year ago, but is no longer on systemic anticoagulation because the providers at the time thought her risk of falling was too high and her risk of thrombosis could be minimized with control of her rheumatologic conditions. Her listed medications include Plaquenil, Prednisone, and Metoprolol. She is also prescribed Alprazolam as needed for anxiety. Before becoming ill, she drank two to four glasses of wine weekly. She has never smoked or used illicit substances. Her father also had rheumatoid arthritis and other, quote, autoimmune conditions, unquote. On interview, the patient exhibits delusional paranoia and auditory hallucinations. She believes that she is being poisoned via the medication and perseverates in asking about interactions between her medications. She hears someone telling her that she needs adenosine. To you, she denies all symptoms, including headache, chest pain, or palpitation, cough, shortness of breath, abdominal pain, diarrhea, or dysuria. To other providers, she claims everything is bad, but declines to name any specific symptoms. On examination, her temperature is 100.1 degrees Fahrenheit. Her heart rate ranges from 99 to 110. Her blood pressure is in the 140s over 80s. She is saturating 97% on room air. She is an elderly female sitting up in bed in no acute distress. She is alert, but refuses to answer orientation questions. She is initially calm, but abruptly becomes anxious and agitated when you ask her about medications. Her speech is clear, but she doesn't answer your questions logically. 
She perseverates on her health and her medications being poisoned, but can become easily distracted. She does not participate in a full neurologic exam, but her pupils are reactive and she moves all four extremities. She speaks in full sentences and at full volume without signs of dyspnea, and her lung sounds clear to auscultation. Her abdomen is soft and non-tender, and her surgical incisions look well-healed. Her ostomy contains flatus and a small amount of soft stool. Her extremities are warm and well-perfused, without edema. Her basic metabolic panel is significant for hyponatremia to 126 compared to 130 on discharge, as well as mild hypochloremia to 91. The remainder of her electrolytes and her BUN creatinine are well within normal limits. Her CBC shows a leukocytosis to 19, though her white blood cell count appears to be chronically elevated between 12 to 18 over the past year, which has been attributed to chronic steroid use. Her hemoglobin is 10, consistent with her baseline anemia, and her platelet count is 690 as compared to her baseline in the 600s. So that is all the information we are going to be hearing about this case. What do you think? What will you have done? Not rhetorical questions this time. So if you want to stop right here and work on submitting a diagnosis, go ahead. Follow the URL. It's in the show notes. Of course, you could also stick around and hear what our discussant has to say first. No worries. And that's not cheating. That's getting a second opinion, I think. So for this week's case, we sat down with Dr. Neil Shapiro. Dr. Shapiro is NYU faculty, a general internist at the Manhattan VA Hospital here in New York. I also want to mention, Cindy, he's the editor-in-chief for Clinical Correlations, which is NYU's online journal of medicine. If you haven't checked it out, I'd recommend taking a look. It's got a lot of thoughtfully written topical reviews, mystery quizzes, a whole section on doctor stories called Tales of Survival, which is one of my favorites. And uh, all of this is peer-reviewed. It also happens to be one of the places where CoreIM lives, so that's got to count for something, right? Oh, and don't forget to mention that he was sick during the recording. Oh, right, yes. He was sick during the recording. Or at least he was putting on a very good show. You know, we can add that to his handicap, I suppose. So I think the, the, the first thing that comes to mind is, is that this case stresses me out. <laughs> and I, I think when, whenever I see a, an 85-year-old who has had a change in mental status, you know, the, the differential for me becomes extraordinarily broad. And then in the back of my mind, I'm just hoping that it's just some sundowning that, you know, we all see, you know, all the time and we're able to sort of chalk it up to some entity that we don't really fully understand. And for, for myself, that that's why it, it stresses me out, A, is because I'm going to have a, a tough time deciding how to treat that, but I'm also going to have a a difficult time ruling out all the different possibilities because the possibilities, especially with this case, are, are enormous in terms of their the, the broadness of the, the possibilities. Now, it's interesting how the first thing he shows us is what he's feeling, right? He's hoping she'll turn out to have something benign. He's not liking the idea of putting a patient like this through an exhaustive evaluation. He's stressed about having to decide on treatments without a guarantee of ever getting a final answer. You know, there's this risk that your emotional reaction to a case can skew your decision-making. That's what's called affective bias. And I mean, we've all felt this way before, right? I feel like part of the stress he's talking about comes from having to fight your own instincts. I should get an LP, but 
do I really want to do that to this lady? You know? I do wonder is acknowledging how you feel about a patient, recognizing the potential for affective bias, is not enough to prevent it from influencing your judgment? Well, how we can counteract our biases, that's an active area of research in cognitive psychology. But at least from what I've read, knowing seems to be much less than half the battle. A recurring theme in the literature in this area is that physician awareness of bias doesn't guarantee at all that debiasing actually occurs. One barrier is the fact that, you know, as one author puts it, quote, the same kinds of biases that distort our thinking in general also distort our thinking about the biases themselves. It's like trying to perform surgery on your own hands. And it's hard to work against the brain's hardware, right? I mean, do you remember back in episode one when we talked about the representativeness heuristic as it was studied by Kahneman and Seversky? Even when you remind people how rare computer science majors actually are, they still think that this guy, Tom W., is a computer scientist because by his description, which is that of a bookish, socially awkward neatnik, he still seems computer science-y. But I do think that learning to recognize our biases like this is part of deliberate practice. If something goes wrong, you have a map of your reasoning process and you can localize the problem. Yeah, you're right. And it keeps you humble, right? Knowing that we're flawed like this. I mean, what is stress if not applied humility? There, there's, there's lots here and, you know, I can start going through the different pieces and, and, and picking it out. So, you know, what, what I, I, I pulled out and I think the problem representations and illness scripts that uh, you guys have talked about on your, your past podcasts are important, but they sometimes can be limiting. Um, especially the problem representation, because if you don't do a good problem representation, you're going to miss things and you're going to, you know, and if you decide that something's not important and you don't put it in there, it's going to sort of fall by the, the wayside. Um, so trying to take this into a, a, a problem representation, you know, an elderly 85-year-old female who is not on anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation, who has rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, which... I, I can pause there and say if, if, if there's possible a possibility that an 85 year old can have both those diagnoses simultaneously, but I I'll leave it you know, <laughs> at that. Um, an ITP, and who has a hypercoagulable state on top of that, who also then recently has surgery um, with a hospital course that's complicated by delirium, now presents with maybe recurrent delirium or new. Delirium. So some of our listeners gave us feedback that in the past episodes we talked about problem representation, and heard discussants share their problem representations with us. But we never actually defined what it is, or more importantly, how do we do it better? Fair point. So let's define it. And actually, I think this is interesting. The concept of problem representation didn't originate in medicine. It's been around since the early to mid-20th century when there started to be growing interest in the fields of psychology, cognitive science, artificial intelligence, about how human beings solve problems. And the key insight that you know, these researchers in these fields had is that for a person to solve a problem, they have to first define it. And how a person conceptualizes the problem strongly influences how they search for its solution and how successful and efficient they're going to be at that. So, for example... 
Cindy, give me a math problem, a multiplication problem, something I can't answer just by looking at it. Um, how about twenty-two times fifteen? Twenty-two times fifteen. Okay, perfect. Now, full disclosure: I am not good with numbers. To this day, my wife, who I went to high school with, she makes fun of me for spending six years in what she calls stupid math. So when I stare at these numbers, twenty-two times fifteen, my initial instinct is either to guess or to grab paper and a pen or a calculator. If I don't have those, I'll have to resort to doing the math in my head. I'm picturing myself writing down the numbers, carrying the one. It's slow, and there's a real chance I'll make a mistake. But if I conceptualize the problem differently, fifteen times twenty-two—that's fifteen times twenty plus fifteen times two. I can do that. Three hundred plus thirty. Three thirty. Suddenly, the problem becomes solvable, even for me. That is problem representation. It is a mental model a person constructs that summarizes their understanding of the problem's essential nature, and it's important because it shapes the way they tackle the problem. Right. So, problem representation can be so much more than just a one-liner, just a succinct summary of the case. Exactly. Though you know. Quote, capturing the essential nature of a medical case is all well and good, lofty. That's that's why we do this. But going back to what you asked originally, Cindy, how do we get better at doing it? Well, I think it's helpful to remember that a good problem representation should address three fundamental questions about a case. One, who is the patient? By extension, what are they at risk for? Two, what is the tempo of their illness? And three, what is the clinical syndrome? Referring to this framework when constructing your problem representation for a case is a good practice. Right, Cindy. You can see how Dr. Shapiro's problem representation touches on each of those areas. Who is she? Well, she's an elderly woman with lots of comorbidities, a recent hospitalization, and surgery. The clinical syndrome it, he thinks is delirium. But why is she suddenly delirious? Or is it sudden? Does the fact that she had delirium during her initial hospitalization Mean that she has something that was already brewing then, and what about these rheumatologic diagnoses? Are they real? Are they relevant to her current illness? These questions outline his problem space and are going to allow him to target his next questions, his exam, his tests accordingly. Also, notice how he's not just summarizing all the abnormal raw data. That's a mistake I sometimes see students and residents make. He's abstracting the data into meaningful chunks. Say, eighty-five-year-old becomes elderly. The entire complicated history over the past two weeks is consolidated into recent hospitalization with surgery. The agitation, confusion, paranoia, hallucination—it's interpreted as delirium, which is kind of an intermediate diagnosis in and of itself. We need to be thorough when we collect clinical data, but when it comes to framing the case, experts. Generally, tend to spend more time exploring relationships between data, less time hyperanalyzing the superficial details. It's true she specifically had a colostomy for perforated diverticulitis two weeks ago, as opposed to say an ERCP for cholecystitis five days ago. So maybe one or more of those details is going to be crucial. But in terms of fueling your thought process, thinking abstractly, so sick, recent hospitalization, got antibiotics, had surgery. That can trigger many more hypotheses, and while imposing much less burden on your working memory. So then, so that being the the problem representation, 
it's then opens up a, a Pandora's box of possibilities. And, and, you know, the, the, the first bucket, and, and there could be a number of buckets, I think, to put this into would be infection. There would be a, a neuro bucket. Is this a primary neurological entity? Um, rheumatologic, you know, how does the lupus, the antiphospholipid syndrome, uh, how does that work into it? There may be metabolic. Um, and then there's the iatrogenic, which I think of as, you know, the pills that we're poisoning her with. Um, and, you know, trying to not go too far beyond that, because I think, you know, that would make it even more challenging. I, I think I would leave it at those buckets to start and then taking each bucket in a systematic way. But I would never start taking those buckets without getting objective data first before I start deciding to treat, to, you know, to not treat. Some cognitive researchers have suggested that generating diagnostic hypotheses at a more abstract level is a behavior that distinguishes the expert from the non-expert. So in other words, a novice will hear a case and immediately try to fit the findings together into specific diagnoses, like lupus cerebritis. And so they get stumped when the connection between the findings and the final diagnosis isn't clear. The expert, meanwhile, takes an intermediate step, uses the findings to hypothesize about the nature of the illness. They think about buckets, as Dr. Shapiro calls them. They speculate about, say, the category of disease, like could this be nosocomial infection, or about the pathophysiologic processes involved, like systemic inflammation. They then use these intermediate constructs as a bridge to the final diagnosis. If I recall correctly, I think our guest from the last episode of Who Beats, um, Dr. Phillips, also employed a similar strategy and went as far as deliberately verbalizing that he was reframing himself from committing to a specific diagnosis too early. I think we're sensing a recurrent theme here amongst experienced clinicians. Though it's interesting because if you think about it, we typically think of experts as geniuses who are renowned for their ability to jump straight from a finding to a final diagnosis through some flash of insight, right? Think Sherlock. Or remember what happened in episode one. So our discussant heard about acute flaccid paralysis, Sika syndrome, and a rheumatologic history. And he nailed right off the bat a diagnosis of Sjogren's-related RTA causing hypokalemic paralysis. He didn't really bother talking about buckets. Which I think highlights how expert behavior is contextual. It's one thing if the case features a distinctive finding or pattern of findings, something that the expert with all his or her domain of knowledge recognizes as significant. But when the case is dominated by the question of, well, what's signal and what's noise here, you see so much more of what Dr. Shapiro is doing. And our goal should be to learn to recognize the situation we are facing and calibrate our strategy accordingly. You know, one, we always talk about red herrings, right? Things that sort of come up that have no meaning. And I think this case is filled with potential red herrings. Um, the opposite of red herrings, which people don't know, is called Chekhov's guns. And Chekhov was a, a playwright, and there was a line that I think is attributed to him is that if you put a loaded gun on stage, you better make sure that it goes off because everything should have significance and everything should have meaning. It's hard for me to discount any piece of this. 
And I guess one of the things that I'm not willing to do, which maybe you want me to do, is I'm not willing to commit to a diagnosis because I'm still in the anxious part on the, the left side of the curve. By the way, just want to say, I love that phrase, Chekhov's guns. I love it. I think it's deliberate on Dr. Shapiro's part um, that it's the saying of a playwright, right? It's a reminder that all this is artificial, solving cases in an academic setting because someone is writing the case. So there's always going to be this metacognitive element. Like if someone in the real world mows the lawn in their rose garden, who cares? But if I write that into a case, people lose their minds asking themselves, well, why did he include that? It must mean something. Anyway. So we'll let you listen to the rest of Dr. Shapiro's differential without interruption. It's broad and in big bucket, but listening to how he would manage this patient gives us a sense of how he's prioritizing the possibilities. So I guess going bucket by bucket, maybe, that might be the way to, to think about it. I think in any 85-year-old that, that comes in with a change in mental status, the, the, the first thing I'm thinking about is infection. The thing I don't want to miss is infection. So... You know, we're going to, I guess, hear about the, the physical exam in a bit. Um, but all bets are off in an 85-year-old, right? They may not manifest signs and symptoms of an infection. So you're going to be at a little bit of a loss from the objective data. And you're also at a loss from the subjective data because she can't really tell you much. She's confused. A couple of things that sort of stand out to me and, and when we look at the physical, certainly the, the low-grade fever of 100.1. You know, I, what I don't know is, is she still taking the steroids, right? So steroids masking a fever um, that if she's on the steroids has 100.1, then she definitely has a fever. And even if she's not on the steroids as an elderly woman who may not mount a fever, that to me is something that I, I'm going to take very seriously. And I'm going to jump on the infection train and not get off of it until I've proven that she's not infected. Because, uh, again, in terms of not wanting to miss the sort of can't miss and dangerous diagnoses, I'm not going to want to miss an infection in, in, in this patient. You know, the medications, and I can't ignore the medications here. Um, and there's a couple that sort of jump out at me, a few that jump out at me. One uh, is the antibiotics, you know, and there are lists of antibiotics in the elderly that can cause confusion and, and delirium. And she got a two-week course that finished two days ago. What's strange is that she she improved and then got worse. Thinking about, you know, things like quinolones, you know, certainly can cause, you know, confusion and along with all the other horrible things that quinolones do now, um, which is too bad because they used to be great drugs. I think, I, and I mean, it's basically beat over my head over the last five years about you know, the C. diff with the quinolones, yeah. the tendon problems with the quinolones, the hypo and hyperglycemia that you see with the quinolones. I mean, just there's, there's almost too much there. And the other, the other medications that jump out at me is it, it's hard to ignore the Elprazolam um, and that she was getting that for anxiety. And if she had an episode of delirium in the hospital previously, you know, maybe she was given some Elprazolam. And now when she got to the nursing home, she started withdrawing with from benzos, and I've seen this a few times in older patients when it's not really thought of, and they had been on chronic benzos, and and so that as a, a, a mechanism of new change in mental status and delirium would be certainly something to consider. But I have to make the supposition that you know she was getting some benzos in the hospital for 14 days during her surgery, which seems unlikely. The last thing that that 
sort of I think about is the the chronic steroids that she's on um, and how that relates into things and the, the steroids could be potentially um, could be steroids in and of themselves can give you a change in mental status and steroid psychosis but if she's been on them chronically that seems like a, an unlikely etiology but um, certainly uh, if she was on steroids and then now is adrenally insufficient you know that might be something that also could be considered in terms of a, of a change in, in mental status as well. The things that I would like to do, and I, and I think my approach to the patient, you know, at this point would would be, you know, several fold. Um, you know, and, and I think that that is part of the reasoning. It's really like what you would do at this point when I'm staring at this patient, and and how I would handle that. Um, so I think the the main things that I would certainly think about doing number one is imaging right and, and I would certainly want to get her head imaged you know a subdural a neurological event I think is something that I haven't pulled off the table and there's nothing here that would suggest that she might not have that so I, I think imaging her would probably be the first thing you know unfortunately probably what we end up doing is a non-contrast head CT which is not going to rule out all the things that I need to rule out and the, the more involved disease processes and, you know, an MRI with diffusion and knowing that she didn't have a stroke, especially being hypercoagulable, I think would be, you know, really important, you know, for, for me to do. Um, while I'm waiting for that, I, I guess for me, the big decision point is, do I want to give her some broad spectrum antibiotics because I'm not sure what's going on? And, this is where I think I, in my own practice, I probably have a tendency to overdo things when I'm not sure what's going on. Um, and I think to discount the possibility that she has an underlying infection here is, I, I think, would be a potential mistake and maybe a costly mistake. And I always say, you know, it's easier for me to overdo it at the beginning than try to catch up later. I think it would be unwise for me not to cover her belly. Um, even with a soft belly, I mean, she just had surgery. I mean, how can I ignore that? Um, hopefully, I have the benefit of looking at a urinalysis, but the urinalysis is also going to be, you know, probably, you know, looking like an infection regardless, you know, especially if she had a Foley during her last hospitalization. So, you know, and I think here that's why, you know, I, I as granular as I'd want to be, I'm going to end up giving her broad spectrum antibiotics that are going to cover for much of that. In total, Dr. Shapiro mentioned about 18 potential diagnoses, but most of them fall into three categories, infections, medications, and hypercoagulable states such as a stroke, all of which she is at higher risk for because of the recent hospitalization. And you can tell that's what's occupying a lot of his attention. About the medicines, uh, something that he said, which I thought was interesting and a little bit funny. The most interesting piece of the, the case, though, is the chief complaint, which is they are trying to poison me with the pills. So when I think of, you know, a, a patient who is telling me that the pills are poisoning them, you know, to just discount that as part of their delirium, I, I think is it would be wrong, especially in an 85-year-old with delirium. So I, I immediately start thinking, okay, maybe she's right. Maybe the pills are trying to, to poison her. So, you know, he's right. Pills are poison. The only difference between medicine and poison is dose and intent, right? That's what they say. So 
boom, I think we have a diagnosis. All right, dear Who Beats listeners, that is all we will let you hear from Dr. Shapiro for this episode. Now that you've heard the initial reaction from our medical consultant, what do you think is going on? Again, we encourage you to submit your differential to us via HumanDX. Again, just follow that link in the show notes. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks to wrap up this case. Thank you to Drs. Neil Shapiro and Martin Fried for weighing in in this episode. Special thanks to our audio editor for this episode, Richard Chen. And an honorable mention, as always, to Dr. Stephen Liu. Have comments about this case, discussion, or commentary? We would love to hear your th- thoughts on this episode or ideas for future episodes. Send us an email at coreimpodcast at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at coreimpodcast. And just to clarify, uh, HumanDX is a multi-institutional effort. It's independent of NYU, Clinical Correlations, or CoreIM. And as always, opinions in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions, nor should they be construed as medical advice. So thank you for joining us with Core IM. I'm John Huang. And I'm Cindy Fain. See you next time.